Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting here from the home studio. We're broadcasting on Saga 960 AM and on Coastal Carolina Network, and we're live right there in your pocket. Hope you guys are doing well. I'm one half of your host, the Ayala coming in, and I've got David Clement on the horn. David, how goes it? It's going. Uh, it's going. Lots to talk about. Great guests this week. Uh, a long conversation um, with Anthony Koch uh, about uh, all things China, uh, which is always a very hot topic as of right now. Uh, you and I have t- talked about that in the past. Um, yeah, what's cooking on the on the other side of the ocean here, big fella? Uh well, the ocean ain't cooking. It's very cold, windy. Um, <laughs> uh, we were in uh, mid-March. We've got a um, couple travels that we're planning for. It's going to be a nice, you know, hot season here soon. I think a lot of people are ready for a lot of things. Um, but I tell you, man, inflation's getting, it's it's hitting. Uh, I've been looking at prices of uh, places to travel to, uh, even in Europe or going back to the States, looking at prices of flights. Yeah. And- inflation is starting to eat away at everything. And I think now it's the shrinkflation that's really hitting home. Um, I don't know if you've, obviously the grocery store is a, a place that we all visit, but man, I've been looking at packages lately, looking at food. These strawberries, uh, there don't seem to be as many in this package anymore. <laughs> yeah. I think it's hitting about every product category. So that's not looking good. Well, it's, um, I'm starting to make different decisions on where I grocery shop. Um, which is new, where I'm like making a conscious effort to purposely go to different stores, um, as opposed to the the grocery store that may be the closest, which is not necessarily the cheapest. You're just like, there have been a couple like, oh, I'm gonna go pick up a couple of things, and the next thing you know, you're like, well, I got toilet paper, some bacon, some bananas, a thing of blueberries. And some almond milk, and it's like 115 bucks, and you're like, wait, how did how is, <laughs> how is that even possible? Are these blueberries from Antarctica? <laughs> I, I mean, oh my goodness! They're actually they're gold plated blueberries. Okay. Yeah, so they're very no, okay. <laughs> but serious, like there have been some trips where I'm like, okay, I don't, like, I almost wanted to post on Twitter, and just be like, how on earth is this 125 dollars? No, I've had the same. Well, you know, we've looked at the um, size of the products. We've looked at the bills. Um, you know, there's a different tax here on food in the grocery store. It is a, a tad cheaper, but still the prices of food. And this is one thing that gets me. And this is one thing that I love about North America is you tend to have pretty good availability of basically all fruits and vegetables all year long. You know, because people make great deals in the grocery stores, want to make sure that they supply their customers well, it's not really the case here. So uh, when I see a raspberry in February, you know, I get really excited because <laughs> normally you just you just don't have that on the shelf. So you have to get used to the, which I guess if I'm being a, a true paleo caveman is, uh, you know, getting used to the, the fruits and the vegetables of the season. But I'm sorry, I'm too accustomed to my grand North American ways and the love of modern agriculture. Yeah, <laughs> Oh boy! Yeah, well, you I don't mean, know it, man, until you start going going to look for kale and can't find any kale. It's just kind of what happens. So. I have, yeah, and I have I have noticed actually quite a few things, um, 
be, be, like the grams in a particular unit or bag are smaller. The shrinkflation side of things. I'm seeing that pretty common, pretty serious. Um, time and time again here where it's like, wait a second. Didn't this bag of chips used to have 400 grams in it? Now it's 350 and things like that. Sneaky. It's very sneaky. You know what else is sneaky, David? Um, interference into the Canadian government and its elected <sighs> officials by the Chinese Communist Party. So I'm looking oh, forward to this boy. interview that you'll have with uh, with Anthony, kind of diving into the various questions. I've been trying to watch as much of the House of Commons as possible, which I think only a particular type of nerd will admit. But I think, uh, you know, we are doing this as a public service to the listeners of Consumer Choice Radio. So I look forward to that. And then we can chat more about all of that and, um, you know, any other happenings next week. I think that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, but tell you, I'll tell you, David, um, things are running a bit wild. It feels like it's a bit of a, a backwards day. Um, saw a post. Uh, this is from Jennifer Granholm. She is the U.S. Energy Secretary. We've talked about her a little bit. So she is a fellow Canadian. Uh, oh, she yeah, was born that's in, true. Uh, Van- born in Vancouver and uh, immigrated to the U.S. And uh, she's now the Energy Secretary. And uh, she is basically the biggest cheerleader for uh, Chinese-made solar panels <sighs> and uh, has taken her time as the Secretary of Energy to do nothing but denigrate the energy industry, particularly oil and gas companies. Oh, but she's coming out on the other side of this. Uh, She actually, on Wednesday, heaped praise, quote-unquote, on the oil industry for, quote, boosting output and making the U.S. a global energy powerhouse. No thanks to you! (laughs) (laughs) It was was just a few months ago, it was October, when Joe Biden was uh, basically saying that the the oil industry was, was... profiteering war profiteering by just like boosting prices on their own which is the most laughable thing anybody who knows anything about energy you just study the market look at the the charts like twice you realize oh it's actually a global market and there's stuff that's going up and down it's not your neighborhood shell station owner who's making your life difficult yeah yeah <laughs> have you have you seen? I don't know. I don't know if you get any Fox News uh, in Austria, but this whole spy crane thing. Have you followed the spy cranes? The spy cranes. Okay, you'll have to yeah. elucidate this topic for me. So allegedly, a lot of the cranes built or that are used um, in the in U.S. ports are made from or come from this Chinese company. And a bunch of Republicans were asking, like, well, can they be switched off? Like, how do we know there's no, like, kill switch on them? Can they be used for surveillance? And then they were were calling them spy cranes. And I was like, whoa, we graduated from spy balloons, and now we're on spy cranes. (laughs) The Wall Street Journal has reported that U.S. officials fear that China could use the cranes, manufactured by Shanghai's Zhenwei Heavy Industries, to gather intelligence on goods being shipped in and out of the countries. Oh, my Lord. It's a I mean, thing. we talked about washing machines last week, but this is next level. I didn't know that. Oh, my God, the cranes. Yeah. I th- See, I thought I, the way I thought you were going to go is because, you know, we're, we're Yimby folk. So we like to see cranes in a town. You know, it means that there's stuff yes. being built, stuff being piled on top. And it's like, oh, this is great. So it's a 
it's sort of a nimby way to be like, we well, need to be anti-crane. <laughs> it's crazy. Oh, but I like this a lot. I mean, yeah. this is kind of the issue with it, and we talked about it last week, but if you examine the role of Chinese-made supplies, infrastructure, um, it's pretty ubiquitous. <laughs> It's going to end up being basically almost everything, certainly component parts, uh, source parts, uh, most people's computers. You know, sure, it might have, you know, an Apple logo, but you're, you know, all that stuff's getting assembled in China. Uh, I don't, this is, this is what makes all of this very uncomfortable. And I'm happy discussing the ones that deal with national security. You know, that I yeah. think is important and should be discussed and, you know, yeah. having your government bureaucrat uh, do a couple of dances on TikTok is one thing. Um, but, you know, if we look at how we source our materials and with China, I'm afraid it could lead to the Trumpist narrative of just putting tariffs on everything and making everything way more expensive or banning any kind of imports. That doesn't sound good. Yeah, no. It doesn't like, sound good at all. It's, it's pretty frightening. Pretty frightening. Um What's your take on all of, I mean, you mentioned TikTok um, or like national security concerns. Do you think there's going to be more of a push beyond just government officials who can't have it on their devices? Well, um, there's been a couple of senators who are absolutely tripping over themselves to try to ban into oblivion the TikTok app which this is the kind of thing to where, you know, you have coalitions of people who agree on something and then you've got that guy in the group who just wants to go a bit too far. You know, he wants to burn down the building rather than just, you know, standing in front of it. You know, or you, let's go burn it down. It's like, Tommy, no, we're here to protest. And I'm seeing that with a lot of the there's there is one bill put together by Josh Hawley that kind of does this. And it's essentially trying to ban a technology. And we've talked about the nuance of that, but there's no nuance in any of this. You know, it's not a hyper-focused federal employees and those who work in national security consideration should not have TikTok on their government phones. Like, that is a very targeted, clear policy. It's what's happening in Europe. It's happening in Canada. It's happened in the U.S. It's happened in many states. But actually banning an app is ridiculous because all they're going to do is yeah. just take it, copy. Anybody can copy it, figure out another way to do it call it something else, and then what do you do? That's the problem with regulating technology is that it replicates. There is no scarcity of well, technology but also that's Josh, digital. But also Holly wants to make it like illegal for anyone under the age of six, like all social media illegal for anyone under the age of 16. Um, they don't so make he, it easy. He, he really ratchets it up. Yeah, and then they don't make it easy to sign up for these things now. I mean, I know we, we talk about this offline, but the way that... Many of the social media networks are trying to, uh, you know, answer the regulators and all the people in Congress. I mean, they're making these platforms next to unusable, and it's not really helping, certainly not helping me, <laughs> it's not helping us. Who does it, it, realistically, it helps TikTok, because they're not subject to the same rules and restrictions. So, what, how do you fancy that? <laughs> Government people. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah i mean it's yeah. it, it's it's one of those things where it's like huawei in canada was a huge question um tiktok do you 
do you ratchet that up further beyond government officials? I'm sure there are other um, apps or services that would probably fall into the same bucket. Um, I can't think of them. Like, what other? What else? So there's Huawei. There's TikTok. Um, I mean, technically, WeChat? technically, L- the... Lenovo. You know, they they make a lot of laptops, which are actually very good computers. But yeah, th- this is the whole thing: is you start getting into. <laughs> That's my laptop. <laughs> oh, whoop whoop! Um, I'm done. Yeah, I'm done. You're cooked. You're on the list. Oh, particularly with that with that Canadian passport, you're definitely on the list. Uh, there's definitely in technology and electronics. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff. That's why it has to be done with nuance. It has to be done with a light foot. These guys going in brash and seeing who can out out hawk one another. Like it's all well and good when you're on the Senate floor, or you're in some committee, but you know, then you're starting to impact people's lives. And and look, you know, we can go to the dollar stores, right? You go to Dollar Tree, Dollar General, um, you know, any of these stores, a lot of that stuff is made in China. And if you, I don't know, start making it more difficult, people are not gonna have access to cheaper goods. And again, you can say all oh, CCP, but this is the nuance. You need <laughs> what what are we really worried about? Right? Is it just about China gaining an edge? No. It's about the intent of the Chinese Communist Party, those who are connected with it, and a lot of the companies that have personal information. Again, they hacked the credit companies five years ago and got all my information and 160 million other Americans. So that's the stuff we're worried about, not the, you know, (laughs) the dollar store products. But it's tough. And I, I fear the nuance will be lost. Uh, David, but I look forward to the conversation that you'll have with uh, Anthony coming up here in the next segment of uh, Consumer Choice Radio. Um, overall, I've been very pumped up about the program. We've had some uh, great conversations, a lot of more people subscribing um, for the podcast version, which has been really great. And we've seen a, a lot more interest um, on the radio side, too. So thank you to everyone listening on Saga 960 AM, um, Saturdays at 1. And uh, now on Coastal Carolina Network down there in North Carolina, it's, it's great to, to know that our strange little program, which we uh, began in uh, January 2020, is, uh, is at this level. And uh, it's a pleasure to do it every week. So, uh, David, uh, I guess we'll, we'll take it away. We'll go to break now and we'll come back with uh, your interview with, with Anthony. We'll hear about Beautiful. what's happening in Canada. Beautiful. Stay tuned for Alrighty. that interview. Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, I'm very excited to bring back uh, our guest for this week to talk all things uh, Chinese interference in Canadian elections. Uh, We are joined um, by Anthony Kosh, who is the managing principal of AK Strategies and former spokesperson for conservative leader Pierre Polyev. Anthony, thank you very much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me, David. So for, for, I guess, anyone who's been living under a rock, give our listeners a lay of the land of what we know, what has been leaked, where it was leaked. What's your assessment? Yeah, so effectively what's happened, it's kind of unorthodox, but over the course of the last few weeks or months, 
CSIS officials have leaked anonymously to a series of reporters, primarily folks at the Globe and Mail through Bob Fife, but also to folks like Sam Cooper, who's an investigative journalist at Global News, a series of information detailing some of the ways in which the Chinese Communist Party in Beijing has been infiltrating and influencing Canadian politics. Uh, so we got everything basically from apparently there was a program that was designed all the way back in 2013 when it seemed like Justin Trudeau was likely going to be the next prime minister of Canada, which involved, uh, you know, extraordinarily wealthy Chinese billionaires of the sort being instructed by the Chinese government to make donations to the Trudeau Foundation, the Pierre Trudeau Foundation. Mm hmm. Followed by a series of sort of dirty tricks in local nomination races and specific attempts by Chinese diplomatic officials to target primarily conservative members of parliament who had taken hard lines on the regime. So the most notable example of this that comes to mind is Kenny Chu, who was an incumbent that was unseated. And this is done, again, through a variety of means, some of which is like widespread misinformation campaigns, you know, basically spreading it through apps like WeChat, telling people that the Conservative Party uh, hates Chinese people and, you know, is racist against Chinese Canadians or promoting falsehoods, for example, that if a Chi if a conservative government were to win, that Chinese permanent residents would be sent back to China uh, or that Chinese uh, international students studying at Canadian universities would suffer same fates. And then, you know, you have these stories of Chinese Canadian seniors and permanent residents being bussed in with names of specific candidates written on their arms with specific instructions to mm -hmm. vote for one candidate over another on that basis. So it's wide ranging. I mean, you know, we've been talking for years in this country about elite capture, uh, but now it seems that this has sort of directly bled into the uh, Liberal Party of Canada in particular. And the big takeaway, I guess I'd say for everybody listening at home, is that CSIS confirmed that Chinese diplomatic officials were stating in no uncertain terms that Justin Trudeau winning both in 2019 and in 2021, and now it seems in 2015, was their preferred outcome. And yeah, and, they, and, 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 and then they the, took steps to accomplish that aim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, the the funny thing here is that a lot of, I mean, liberal Twitter is always hilarious to engage with. But it seems like there's a huge disconnect because the talking point at one point was like, well, even if it's true, it was just a nomination race. And it's like, well, yeah, but in a lot of, in many writings, conservative NDP or liberal, they will always vote for that party. Um, if you win the nomination race for the conservatives in Fort McMurray, you essentially are the member of parliament because Fort McMurray is not voting for anybody else. Um, and so by going at the grassroots level, um, you're, you're kind of one step ahead of the game. It's not the general election per se, but you're influencing who is representing constituents in that particular riding based on some sort of preferences. The, the individual who is alleged uh, in this case is the member of parliament, Han Dong. Um, he has denied uh, these claims. Um, what is your take on his denial and what it, what are allegations at this point? Um, but well, yeah, what, how do you respond to that? Well, again, the, you know, the thing is sometimes there's coincidences, but there's rarely coincidences in Canadian politics. Okay. So I'll give you an example, you know, first of all, with respect to Mr. Dong, the denial that he provided was basically, Hey guys, I investigated myself and found no wrongdoing. 
wow, <laughs> what a surprise. Yeah. But, you know, the, and again, you know, let's just say, oh, well, you know, organizing nominations is commonplace. Okay, sure, fine, whatever. Isn't it interesting that, uh, you know, over the course of a, of a voting day in Parliament, Handong was present for votes in the middle, uh, the beginning of the day and towards the end of the day. But when it just so happened that the House was voting on motions to condemn uh, the Chinese genocide of Uyghurs, that he happened to leave the chamber at that particular moment, right? So you get it, you get, yeah. and that's the yeah. thing, right? There's, like, there's a like, there's a slow accrual of information and evidence, and it's just like, come on, guys, like stop playing everybody for fools. Um, and, and by the way, but this is, I think, the bigger problem here, and obviously the focus right now is on China, but I think there's a very complicated discussion that needs to have happen in Canadian politics, broadly speaking about the way diaspora groups in Canada are weaponized and influenced by foreign governments to mm -hmm. impact our politics. Because yes, obviously we're talking about China, but it's not just China, okay? Uh, and I'm not trying to do this. I'm not, I'm not saying this to be one of those liberals trying to obfuscate the issue. This is obviously number one top of mind right now. But I'm saying I understand why a lot of people, particularly white progressives, might be concerned about having these kinds of conversations because they can very quickly devolve into racism and uh, that's not something that yeah. we oh yeah hey we should be aware of that right like it's the point we're not going after chinese canadians we're not going after you know canadians who have are of other diasporas who, or who might be from particular uh, ethnic religious or uh, racial backgrounds but these conversations need to happen and i'm sorry asking these questions is not in and of themselves racist that's a juvenile way to, to to approach this issue so i agree we need to be careful about the way we have these kinds of conversations that's why for example when you look at the way pierre Pauly has been talking about this make sure to specify the regime in beijing right even there's even a hesitance like some people were making comments about it trying to mock him no but it's important not only for for canadians writ large but for chinese canadians in particular to understand that while we need to get to the bottom of this issue that this is not a targeting of canadians who happen to be of chinese descent or who might have been born in china themselves but yeah and it isn't even an attack on ordinary chinese people in china who no, exactly yeah. have a government which was not elected that they had no say in like it's not their fault that the regime or Beijing, or what other word choice you use, those are the, I think, the more appropriate ones rather than just saying China. Um, more accurately, more accurately describe the fact that this is a state actor. Precisely. Yeah, exactly. So that, that's kind yeah. of where we're um, at. Go ahead. I was just gonna say, what do you think of, of this special rapporteur? I mean, there's a difference between a public inquiry and essentially picking a consultant to do a review. It does seem somewhat ironic that in the midst of a somewhat consulting scandal, that this seems to be this seems to be the approach of the liberals, but okay, they're doing something a little late. Um, do you think that that's the way to go versus public inquiry? Uh, or is the public inquiry the way to go? Because that is obviously more public facing and allows Canadians to better assess um, what has happened rather than just being told what has happened. Here's the thing. Uh, the committee that Trudeau has chosen is not a parliamentary committee. It's a committee of parliamentarians. Now, it sounds like I'm making a word salad, but let me explain to you what the difference is and also why we need a public inquiry. And that's not what Trudeau has done. This process is closed. It's secret. 
They report directly to the prime minister, and he controls the entire process from top to bottom. So it's not transparent, it's not open, and most importantly, it's not independent. And I want to make something clear as well here. This special rapporteur, very serious, important title. Ooh. Okay. Eminent Canadian. An, an eminent Canadian chosen by Mr. Trudeau will be investigating to determine whether or not an inquiry might maybe potentially at some point in the future be necessary. Let's call this what it is, folks. This is a political punt. They're kicking the football down the field. They're buying themselves time. They're hoping this dies down in a couple months, and you're going to get some liberal crony appointed to this special rapporteur position. And all they're going to do is in a couple months say, oh, yeah, there's some things. There's a bunch of countries doing all sorts of stuff. We need to take it more seriously. But in the end, let's close this book. Nothing burger. The prime minister did nothing wrong. There was no impact. And I want to make something clear here, by the way, for everybody as well. No one, not myself, not Mr. Polyev, not anybody serious in the conservative party is claiming that Beijing interference in our democracy resulted in the election ending up in a different result at the macro level. Okay. Yeah. The conservative party, we're not saying that the election was stolen. We're not saying that, you know, Aaron O'Toole or Andrew Scheer would be prime minister right now if it was not for Chinese interference or for, or sorry, Beijing interference in our democracy. No. But we're saying, though, is that there is a pattern here. Specific local races, like the one I referenced, Kenny Chu, absolutely did change in direct result of this. And that at the end of the day, man, this is the thing that I find hilarious. This is like you're seeing this from a lot of liberals, right? Oh, well, the election result wouldn't have changed in a meaningful way, so let's close the book. Like, Could you imagine, David, if I or you or, you know, let's depersonalize it. Somebody had this crazy attempted murder attempt, but it didn't yeah. succeed. And we all just said, oh, well, you know, yeah, okay, but it didn't work out, so it's fine. Like, we don't really need to investigate this more than that. It's absolutely ludicrous. And, you know, at what point do, do we determine that this is going to become a, a serious problem, right? The fact that there's even an attempt that people are bragging about it, that it seems to be, you know, quite substantial should be enough to look into this. It doesn't have to get to the point where prime ministers are being decided by foreign governments. I most certainly hope that it doesn't need to, because by that point, it's already too late. Well, and, and this is the conversation I've been having with some of my friends on the other side of the aisle is that the let's say it's china and the liberals today but what if it what if it were or is a different Russia. foreign power and the conservatives tomorrow do you do you want to sit on your hands now and not protect canadian democracy from these uh thwarts or attempted thwarts or do you want like if you don't want to do that then you are opening the door for all sorts of nefarious activity for the people whom you oppose you can't just tolerate it because you're the good guys allegedly and you know what whatever they they were it helped the good guys in a marginal way but we don't really care i mean that's a one-way ticket to some really bad outcomes agreed wholeheartedly and this is why me and you are ideological bedfellows in many respects we we come from a, a more classical liberal tradition which believes that standards and mores and means still matter. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. <laughs> we are very much in the minority. And with all due respect to many of, uh, you know, you said your liberal friends, I've got plenty of them as well. With all due respect to a lot of these folks, man, they see Canada as indistinguishable from the Liberal Party. And whatever is good for the Liberal Party is good for Canada. And, you know, if that means that sometimes you have to look the other way when stuff like this happens, then they're more than willing and more than happy to do so. There's people in this country who fundamentally see conservatism, the conservative party and their provincial counterparts, they themselves as, as inherent threats to democracy. Right. Mm -hmm. For them, for them, democracy is not a process. It's not a series of it's it's 
when my particular ideological persuasion wins elections all the time and the things that I care about and the issues of the day that I think should matter are the ones that happen to be the ones that take the predominance in the public square. And this is something that I think people on the right need to wake themselves up to, to a certain extent. But um, you know, we love to talk about our principles and talk about the importance of these standards and these mores. But on the other side, and I'm not, I am painting with a broad brush necessarily here, but the point being is there's much more of a, a hyper-focused concentration on power, what that means in any and all circumstances. And the fact that, you know, the ends matter more than the means. And then yeah. because they're they're so convinced that they are so righteous, and more importantly, that we are so evil and so nefarious and so bad that okay, maybe a foreign government put their finger on the on the scales a little bit here and there, but it it wasn't so big of a deal. And you know, they're the one to look the other way. And we know damn well the same people now, David, that are trying to brush this under the rug and say that it's irrelevant are the same folks who screamed bloody murder for four years in the context of American politics, saying that Donald well, Trump was elected president because the Russians so, did it. And this is the thing about the, the people whom you just described. They feel like inverse, inverse Trumpists, right? Where the leader can do no wrong, we will, we will do the mental gymnastics to literally defend even something we were against a week ago just because it was the party that we like, the leader that we like. And they it feels like they just mirror, they have different values and principles, but they just mirror that kind of bouncing back and forth to do whatever it takes. Yeah, absolutely. And this is that's what it all comes down to, right? And I think it's sort of like this negative politics. And you saw this a lot with Trump supporters as well. It, yeah. it wasn't even necessarily that they loved their guy so much, which in many cases, obviously, there are people who love Trudeau and there are people who love Trump. But mm -hmm. it was that they hated their opponents and they believed I do. I do have to cut you off real quick while we uh, we just go to a quick break. Um, but uh, if you can spare a little more time with us, we'll come right back and, and dive a little deeper into this. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, I am joined by Anthony Koch. Um, we were just talking before the break about the the parallels between the kind of really diehard liberal partisans and and the mega crowd uh, i didn't mean to cut you off there but we do have to pay the bills um so the floor is yours yeah no so i'm saying i think this is like sort of the this negative partisanship i'm not the first person to talk about it many other people have spoken about it as well but this idea that you know people are every bit as much motivated in many cases even more so uh by hatred or of the other side more than they are love of their own. So I'm saying, you know, sort of saying before, there's obviously people who genuinely love the Liberal Party of Canada, Justin Trudeau, and support his political agenda and, you know, uh, are considered ideological bedfellows. And there's obviously people who really like Donald Trump and supported the Republican Party under his presidency and liked a lot of the policy initiatives that he was implementing. But when it comes to this double standard, I guess, that we observe from a lot of these people in terms of slamming the other side for conduct that they then excuse when it's exhibited in very much similar ways on their own side is because their belief that the other side's so god awful and horrible and bad that you know when they when they weigh the sort of moral probabilities of these behavior they say oh well you know what i'm willing to look the other way on this sort of thing right we've we've basically lost the ability to say some things are wrong full stop no matter who does them and mm -hmm. there should be 
prices for it, regardless of whether it's team blue or team red in the American or the Canadian context, right? And people often ask me this, and I'll tell you flat out, if I ever happen to be a senior staff or a member of a government where this sort of situation unfolded, even if it happened to conservatives, and there was this clearly concerted effort to make this go away or to cover it up, I would resign and refuse to be a part of it. I think it's unforgivable. Yeah. You know what? I hope people like you hold me to this one day if I'm ever in that position. Yeah. But yeah, I'm I'm in the same boat where I look yeah. at this and it's like how how we like uh, there's a lot of levels there, but it's like how how desperate are you to stay in whatever that role is that you have that you just throw any um, any regard for your apparent morals or beliefs or principles out the window. And I know that politics is about bending and compromise, but this is where we cross the line of compromise into hypocrisy. Yeah, precisely. And I have to think what we're discovering is a lot of people, right? What's What's this old saying, even for public polling, you've got revealed preferences, right? And shallow intentions. Mm-hmm. And the fact of the matter is a lot of people love to talk a very big game, but all the morals and principles that they hold dear and they'll tear their shirt off on television or on Twitter, scream bloody murder and, you know, feign outrage when the opposite side does something that they claim violates their moral principles. But then all of a sudden, magically, uh, that line disappears, right? And as my father always told me, <laughs> a principle that you abandon at the first difficulty is no principle at all. And yeah. uh, I happen to agree with that wholeheartedly. So I don't, unfortunately, I'm not convinced this is going to get better anytime soon. No, uh, I don't. I, I don't think. Done. I don't think it's going to get better. And I would love to see. I mean, if I'm a reporter, and 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 um, and the member of parliament who we mentioned, Dong, um, says, you know what, I investigated and I didn't do anything. This may be a bit of a, a cheap shot or an unfair question, but there are questions you can ask to parse out what that person actually thinks about what's going on in the world. Yep. What is his opinion about how the Uyghurs are treated? Does he have one? I'd love to know that. Um, the same goes for Michael Chan. The, um, the former provincial politician in Ontario, who's now the deputy mayor and regional councillor in Markham. What are your opinions? And we know some of his, they're rather uncomfortable. Um, and that starts to shed some light as to maybe they have no knowledge of interference, but it does beg the question of why a foreign government would interfere on their behalf. And that's the second part of the conversation that is often missing is right now we're talking about threats to democracy. But the big question is, well, why would they want him to win? Is it because he has, in my opinion, backwards views about the protests in Hong Kong? Um, Now, some would probably think those are cheap shot questions. I'm not sure if you agree or not, Um, but it is a very good way, in my opinion, of parsing out where they stand. Absolutely. And that's the point. And and these questions are often purposely avoided. And to the extent that when journalists do actually ask them, right, the first defense, and this is what I said, Canada needs to mature as a country. The first time, you know, you were to ask a question to that to a guy like Michael Chan, not because he's Chinese or because he's a Chinese origin, but because he's expressed opinions to this effect in the past, mm-hmm. they would just throw their hands up, scream bloody murder and say, this is anti-Asian hate. This is anti-Chinese racism. And the conversation would stop there. 
And I know that, for example, because Michael Chan, I think it was yesterday, actually put out a statement, wrote a letter to Justin Trudeau saying, we need to have a public inquiry. Yes, but not in this issue. We need to have a public inquiry into how racist CSIS is and why they're targeting Chinese Canadians. This was this was his contribution to the conversation yesterday. So, um, no, I I think, like I said, this is the it's not going to go away. It's probably going to get worse before it gets better. But Canada and Canadians writ large need to come to some sort of place politically, spiritually, and culturally where we're able to have these really difficult conversations and ask these really tough questions without it devolving into racism while also not allowing people for nefarious purposes to use genuine concerns about racism as a smokescreen to cover up garbage like what we're seeing in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I want to chat with you quick on the CSIS side of the question, because obviously that's a huge part of the equation here. A lot of people are very concerned about the leaks um, and and their veracity. To me, it seems a bit like an inverse Snowden. Snowden goes to the press because of what the government is doing. Whomever this person or people are at CSIS are going to the press because of what the government is not doing. Um, How serious do you see these leaks in terms of um, threatening national security or any of the other security concerns that may come up if intelligence information is being leaked to the press like this? Well, I don't know your perspective on this, David, but I know from I tend to, in general, lean on the side of whistleblowers. That's my Mm -hmm. my sort of predisposition. I don't see how any of this, you know, if we want to talk about the, the concept of leaks generally, that's one thing. But I think the leaks that have come out specifically in this circumstance, I don't understand how they in any way, shape or form compromise national security. I don't know. I, 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 I've, you know, I've heard that argument a lot, but like this was not disclosure of, you know, secret facilities or of the location of Canadian troops abroad or it was none of that. It was basically, here are these things that we found that we reported to the prime minister that we've encouraged him to speak out about that we think is the Canadians should know about. And for whatever reason, he continues to cover this up, hide it, and not talk about it publicly. And the fact that these people are risking, by the way, I want this to be clear to everybody. If 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 they find out who these people are, they run the risk of not only losing their job, but potentially serving up to 14 years in prison. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, not the kind of thing you do that for something that you think is relevant, small, or not important. These are people that are, are putting themselves on the line in a pretty major way to get this out. Um, and uh, I, I don't think, I think that's, I would call it the political equivalent of gaslighting to try and suggest that the real issue here is that we've got these super scary deep state actors. Like it's, again, very Trump, very <laughs> yeah. Trumpian. These super scary deep state actors that are trying to take down the sitting prime minister for partisan purposes. Give me a break. Well, and this is the thing. We don't have many references to leakers in Canada as as they do in the United States. But my response always has been when, when folks are like, oh, obviously someone at CSIS has a grudge against the prime minister. And it's like, well, if you look at any of the famous leakers and what happened to them, uh, Bill Binney with the NSA, Thomas Drake, Edward Snowden, Chelsea Manning. I mean, all of their lives were destroyed. Chelsea Manning almost died. Um, that is, to some extent, what this individual or these individuals are, are potentially risking um, by doing this. And so you have to ask, is someone really going to put everything they have on the line because they don't like the prime minister? 
or does it come from a different place where maybe they're genuinely concerned at the threats to Canadian democracy and the role that the Chinese Communist Party is attempting to play in it? Exactly. And I think you even see like there was one of the things that hasn't been covered too, too much. Some people have mentioned it, but, you know, originally the prime minister was claiming that he was never briefed on any of this. Mm -hmm. Never heard. He feigned ignorance. I, I didn't know anything. You know, all we had heard was we had this special panel of people and, you know, Elections Canada guaranteed us that, uh, you know, our elections were had integrity of the highest order, blah, blah, blah. And then it turns out, right, you know, in committee a couple of days ago that the National Security Advisor and other people said, oh, no, we had briefed him several times on this. He was aware. So then, you know, this is where, like, the, the difficulties start to sort of come out is like, okay, well, what did he know? When did he know it? Why did he lie about not knowing it? And what exactly are we looking at here, right? That's the thing. At the end of the day, you know, the truth will set you free. Transparency is always great. And I'm a big believer in this, not in the context necessarily of the surveillance state, but I'm saying from a political perspective, if you've got nothing to hide, open it up. It will yeah. exonerate you. The easiest way to get any, in any time, you know, you're facing a scandal and you're maintaining that you did nothing wrong. The easiest way to prove that and to instill immediate confidence in people that what you're telling is the truth is to say, you're absolutely right. Open up the books, get that independent inquiry in there, go through anything. I knew nothing. And if this inquiry finds that anybody did know something and I was not made aware of it, we're going to deal with them in the appropriate manner. But that's not what they're doing. They're acting exactly the way you would expect someone to behave if they were guilty. Yeah. And, and it really strikes me as odd because it's just, it really could be that simple. Just saying, hey, maybe this happened. Maybe, maybe it didn't. Maybe this is a nothing burger or maybe there's nothing more to it, but we owe it to Canadians to get to the bottom of this. And yet there, there's a huge accountability gap. I mean, the fact that you've just highlighted the prime minister said he wasn't briefed and now it has been discovered that he was. It's like, I don't understand how that that in and of itself isn't this the front page news story where it's like, well, okay, the prime minister lied. Why did he, why would he lie about that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it just makes me scratch my head, but we have about uh, two and a half minutes here um, before the end of this segment. What do you think we can do to better insulate or protect our democracy from these attempts of foreign interference from the Chinese Communist Party or otherwise? Oh, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> that is the question. Yeah, it might be might be worthy of another show. Yeah, exactly. I, I think really what, what it comes down to is, I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the fact that the first thing at the very least that we need to do is we need to start talking about it in an open manner. Mm -hmm. And you talk to any political organizer worth anything from the last 10, 15, 20 years, this stuff's not new. No. It's not just from the, the from, from Beijing. I mean, the money stuff and, and the elite capture is relatively new, but I'm saying the sort of leveraging diaspora groups for specific political outcomes. And by the way, sometimes through threatening family members back at home, et cetera, et cetera. Like we heard, uh, Yesterday, I believe there was a a member, a leader in the Uyghur community, the Uyghur Canadian community basically said that a Chinese official called his house and basically said, your sisters are dead. Mm -hmm. That kind of intimidation. Um, we need to talk about it. 
We need to address this. Hold on. And we need, yes, some people, there will be some people who in the process of this conversation use it as an opportunity to spread racism against specific demographics. That's going to be a part of it. We have to, but we have to have confidence as a country that we can deal with that while still also addressing the elephant in the room that people really don't seem to want to address. But at the end of the day, in a healthy democracy, if we want to stay a healthy democracy, these conversations need to happen. And uh, it looks like they're going to happen whether we like it or not. So, Well, Anthony, it's been a pleasure. Where can listeners uh, learn a little bit more about what you have to say about things? <laughs> well, you can watch me on Power and Politics every Tuesday night, but you can also follow me on Twitter, which is probably where uh, I have the most fun. That's where, all, Yeah, that's where all the good stuff is. <laughs> Anthony takes on True and On. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's been a pleasure, my friend. Really appreciate it. And we will have you back on the program soon. Thank you for having me.